You're listening to Everyday Evidence, presented by the American Occupational Therapy Association, helping the occupational therapy practitioner apply evidence to practice. Here's your host, Matt Brandenburg. Today, I am joined by Dr. Lauren Little. Lauren Little is an associate professor of occupational therapy at Rush University. Lauren's clinical expertise is in intervention for families of children with neurodevelopmental conditions, including autism spectrum disorders. She has conducted research on the efficacy of telehealth for families of young children with ASD and is active in promoting access to intervention services for underserved families of children with developmental conditions. Lauren, you have received an American Journal of Occupational Therapy Article of the Year Award a special interest section article of the year award, and have been part of two AOTF-funded intervention research grants. You're currently working on a grant from Rush Translational Science Consortium for a telehealth intervention to address early intervention access disparities among underserved families. Thank you for all this research that you do and that you have done and for being on the show today. Thanks so much for having me, Matt. Of course. And right off the bat, Lauren, can you tell us about this grant and what your team is going to be researching? Sure. So I'm really excited about this one. Um, We are researching how under-resourced families on the west side of Chicago are accessing early intervention services during COVID-19. When early intervention went fully virtual during spring of 2020 due to the pandemic, many families could no longer access their services. And while schools sent home Chromebooks to their students, like as part of Chicago Public Schools, other school systems around the country, the early intervention system doesn't have the capacity to do that. So many families were going without services. I'm working with Dr. Ann Hoffman, a speech language pathologist and PhD at Rush on this project. And we are investigating the extent to which families can access their EI services as well as do a session coaching with an OT or SLP student via telehealth once a week. And we offer families a tablet and a hotspot to do so. So we're also looking at the cost effectiveness or cost outcomes of providing families with tablets and data. And I really want to know how just kind of addressing these access issues can influence children's developmental trajectories over time. That sounds like such an interesting research project. And I just want to mention right off the bat that Lauren is, is such a dedicated researcher and so motivated to to help disseminate um, best practices and evidence-based practice within the field of occupational therapy uh, that she's conducting this interview while watching her daughter, um, who you may hear in the background, um, just wanted to... to <laughs> Make that known so our listeners know what's going on in the background. (laughs) Right. Well, I'm sure many of us can relate to um, this is our life during the pandemic. So, you know, I always (laughs) I like to make that apparent as this is how we're working right now. And absolutely. And and we appreciate you uh, taking the time and being on the show, even even with everything going on. And uh, Lauren, I know you've been part of some all-star research teams. Uh, Before we really dive deeper into your publications and your research's implications for practice, would you like to give any of your collaborators or teammates a shout out? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I can't do any of the work that I do without really smart, talented people that I like to work with. Um, I'm part of a mentorship group. We meet online every other week. 
and it's called Wheelio. We like each other. <laughs> so um, I've had fantastic mentorship throughout my academic career. Dr. Grace Baranek served as my PhD and postdoctoral mentor, and Dr. Winnie Dunn served as my program chair during my time at uh, KU, and she continues to be a mentor and a friend. Dr. Scott Tomchek is an amazing mentor as well. Uh, Dr. Evan Dean, super smart and dedicated colleague. And then Dr. Anna Wallish, a postdoctoral research associate at Juniper Gardens Children's Project at KU. She is my partner in crime and a great friend. And then, of course, one more, Dr. Ann Hoffman at Rush, and I have become close collaborators. So um, it's nice to work on teams. It's the only way, and it makes research way more fun. I love how you, you added that, that caveat, that smart researchers, but also people you like to work with. Um, <laughs> I think that's so important. Um, and having a, a team uh, that you like to work with can make a huge difference, um, not just in research, but in, in practice as well, I believe. For sure. For sure. All right, Lauren. So your first publication related to telehealth interventions for children with autism spectrum disorder was published in 2016. Uh, like you mentioned previously, uh, we know that the provision, the provision of virtual services via telehealth um, and for educational purposes has changed a lot uh, due to the COVID pandemic. Um, can you share with us some of the impacts on service delivery for practitioners, clients, and families from these uh, changes in, in virtual service? Sure. So, you know, everything with telehealth basically changed overnight. I've been showing up at different meetings and talking about evidence and, you know, for a couple of years. And then in March of 2020, all of a sudden people were forced to use telehealth. I think your question is really interesting because it's about how people are implementing telehealth now. And I think it's going to be difficult for families and providers after this pandemic is over. Hopefully this will be over soon. I think it's difficult for people to parse out our feelings related to telehealth and our feelings related to the pandemic in some ways. You know, we've had to do telehealth with our own kids, our families, our pets, everyone at home. And sometimes, you know, we're quarantining while trying to provide services. Families are quarantining. Everybody's in the house. And that's super stressful. So it's stressful enough to try something in your practice for the first time. You know, maybe you don't feel super prepared. And then throw a pandemic on top of that and say to practitioners, like, you have to do this next week. So I don't know what the long-term outcomes will be, but I'm hopeful that what's the saying, like the, the toothpaste is out of the tube. I'm, I'm hopeful that individuals and systems will want to continue with telehealth and that we'll have the time and the space to make providers and even families feel more comfortable accessing services this way. So there's a definite advantage to in-person services. Telehealth is never meant to be a complete standalone model for every client, child, or family. The other thing that your question makes me think about, about how we're going to move forward with telehealth, is thinking about the digital divide and so how the pandemic has really unveiled these inequities. And when we were writing about telehealth, you know, four years ago, five years ago, I thought it was a way to increase access. But I think the pandemic has shown us that that's not true for all people. And when families don't have access to tablets or even enough data, telehealth is just another way that they can't get services. 
So as a profession, I think we have a lot of work to do to address how we are thinking about social and racial equity issues in our intervention research, um, including intervention research with telehealth. There's uh, two two parts of your answer that I'd love to, to ask follow-up questions on. First being, you mentioned telehealth was never meant to be a, a standalone intervention for families, children, and, and clients. How would you recommend that a practitioner balance using both telehealth and in-person services during this time? Yeah, I think it's never meant to be a standalone for all children and all families. In our studies, we actually never saw the families in person, and we did that on purpose because we wanted to look at outcomes when it was completely a standalone service. And we did find significant significant outcomes in those studies. But I think it's got to be clinical reasoning. It, I mean, it has to be up to the practitioner, kind of what their thoughts are, the families, what they feel most comfortable with, and how that, that combination looks. I think people get a little freaked out about telehealth when um, they think it's going to take away in-person services um, or replace. I don't think it's ever a replacement, but it could definitely be a supplement or even a standalone when we don't have when we don't have providers in that area, when families don't have the flexibility or the time to drive their children to services. I think there are circumstances where it can be standalone. But again, it's always got to be clinical reasoning as well as kind of family needs. We'll get back to our interview right after this quick message. You all know we really try to make research more consumable and applicable on everyday evidence. But did you know that just one minute of your time could help us to improve the show, improve the resources the American Occupational Therapy Association provides for practitioners, and improve the application of evidence to practice within our whole field? Please take our one-minute survey. It's only three questions, and you can find the link in this and every episode's description and support the AOTA in continued efforts to improve our podcasts and to improve the translation of research to practice. Now back to the interview. Absolutely. Thank you. And the second point I wanted to touch on was you mentioned access to telehealth. Can you explain how and why families of children with autism spectrum disorder often have difficulty accessing early intervention services? So we've written about families of children with autism, and I think that this group has difficulty accessing evidence-based models of intervention because there's not a lot of practitioners in early intervention that may think that the child has autism when they're around two years old. So screening for autism is getting better and better. It's getting faster. However, even if a child is suspected of having autism around two years old when they're still in early intervention, they can sit on a wait list for a diagnosis for quite some time to get into that, you know, see that diagnostic team. So I think that our time to capture these kids in early intervention is brief. You know, we may not know that the child has a diagnosis of autism under three years of age. So it might not necessarily be a matter of accessing EI services if they have enough of a percentage of a developmental delay to qualify. Um, It may be more related to accessing these evidence-based models that have been shown to support children with autism. 
So making sure that we're looking at things like joint attention, social communication, functional play, positive, warm interactions with caregivers. Some of these strategies that are evidence-based, and we really want to push those if the child's kind of going in the autism diagnostic diagnosis route, instead of working on things like increasing fine motor strength or something like that, that that may not mean all that much for their developmental trajectories as related to their autism diagnosis. Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, I think it does. I I know during the pandemic, implementing telehealth has increased the number of people who can access OT services. I think everyone's really experienced a large pivot and a lot of people have been using telehealth to to maintain the type of access for families and children and, and clients. But would you say children with ASD receiving telehealth interventions achieve as good of outcomes as those who receive in-person treatments? I like this question. I want to know about how we define outcomes. So you know, a lot of young children with autism receive lots of ABA. But in our coaching interventions, we don't have outcomes that look the same as those that are in their ABA plans. So in coaching and in telehealth, I really want to know about caregiver efficacy and child participation in whatever occupations are important to that family. And I think what is at the essence of your question, though, is about this kind of concept and research they talk about non-inferiority. So is telehealth inferior to in-person services? And there's actually some data about how telehealth may result in better outcomes for young children um, because parents are really put in the driver's seat. And especially with coaching, it's more than parent-mediated or parent-implemented. It's, it's truly parent-led. And so parents decide, parents are the experts, and the goal is for us to empower parents to create their routines in the ways that they see fit for their everyday lives. Those outcomes of parent efficacy, parent empowerment, are a little bit different than these kind of like child skill-based outcomes. And so I think it just, I guess my answer is it all depends. Yeah, the the classic OT answer. Um, I, th- I think we're all familiar with hearing that one, but that is really interesting. And it, it sounds like a lot of it depends on parent engagement and, and type of family engagement, which would make sense um, because then interventions seem to be a lot more sustainable when they're carried carried on by the family and kind of led by the by the family and parents as well. For sure. For sure. And I know maybe a lot of clinicians that started telehealth, particularly in school-based practice during the pandemic, that's one of the biggest things we hear is, I used to be with the student in the school. Now we've moved to this telehealth model where the student might be at home and we're really reliant on that parent engagement to facilitate our interventions. And how, how do parents of children with ASD describe their experience with telehealth intervention? So we do have a study about this. Um, Dr. Anna Wallish was the lead, and it's in the open journal called the International Journal of Telerehabilitation. Great journal. Check it out. Um, all kind of open access. Um, in our study, parents really liked the intervention. So when we interviewed families that participated in the research study, they reported the following themes. They said that telehealth was compatible with their everyday lives, 
Um, they felt a really collaborative relationship with the therapist. And then lastly, they felt very empowered by the coaching. So parents told us that that this kind of model of service provision fit for them. You know, a lot of, there, there is there is enough data, I think. We need more, but there's some out there about how parents are satisfied with telehealth. I think part of the difficulty, though, and um, an opportunity that we have right now during the pandemic is to figure out how parents that didn't have a choice feel about it. Because a lot of our data, of course, comes from research studies where people opted in for a telehealth intervention versus, you know, in the community, this was their only choice. Well, how did how did you feel about it? How did you like it? So I think that can be kind of a next step for research. Yeah, that's a, a great point. And it's nice to hear that there's already a lot of future directions um, for your research uh, path. I think now is a good time. I I have caught myself a couple of times already during this interview. I'm kind of stumbling over whether to use person first or identity first language when talking about this population. And I asked Lauren this question before the interview, and she said that really adolescents and adults with autism prefer identity first language and being referred to as autistic individuals, but typically caregivers and parents um, still prefer person first language and referring to children as as children with autism or children who have autism. Am I explaining that correct, Lauren? You know, I, I listeners might have to point us in the direction and individuals might have to tell us. In my experience, um, the adults and self-advocates that we're working with say use the term autistic versus the parents that I'm working with still say my child with autism. So you're you're on track according to my experience. However, we definitely need um, some sort of data, I would say, or um, kind of weigh in from different stakeholders in the community to really let us know. Okay, perfect. I think the advice to all of our listeners is to still just be, be upfront with who you're working with and ask them what they would prefer. Um, and I think people will understand that and, and receive it well. 100%. Lauren, I want to ask, what what is the cost comparison of OT service delivery via telehealth versus a home or clinic-based model of service? And is this really something that you would say practitioners should be aware of when they're delivering intervention? Sure. So in 2018, our team published a paper about the cost comparison of telehealth. Um, it's in infants and young children. And so In that study, we found that the telehealth model, as compared to an outpatient model, outpatient is 2.62 times more expensive than telehealth. And in-home OT is 2.64 times more expensive, so two and a half times, right? The nice thing about that analysis that that we did in that paper was really um, bring in families' costs in addition to the practitioners. So... Data shows that families of children with autism, they have lost income, they have lost work time when they're bringing children to and from therapies, taking time from work. And while telehealth is cost effective and our data, other data shows that, we have to make sure, I think, in our future analyses that we're accounting for that family access piece because I think one of the things that's lacking, even our in our own analysis, was that we didn't really think about how much the technology costs or how much the data costs. 
And numbers show it's like $1,800 a year or so per family. But I think that still, that still matters uh, right now in thinking about these costs. Yeah, I think it's easy to look at data on costs and kind of think, oh, this is like a reimbursement issue or a, a company issue, something for my manager, the business side of things to worry about. But cost all, always affects the family of, of children that are, are being worked with and can affect their, their home environment as well. So thank you for explaining that. I do think it is something uh, important for practitioners to consider. Yeah. Lauren, as a as an, a, really an expert on, on telehealth, how would you say that practitioners can know when it's appropriate to use telehealth to deliver intervention? This is a great question, Matt, and I think it's rooted in clinical reasoning. So uh, recently I served on the American Occupational Therapy Foundation uh, Planning Grant Committee, and uh, Dr. Jana Kaysen, who's been you know, a trailblazer in telehealth and occupational therapy, she was also uh, on this committee with me, and we continue with uh, Drs. Rachel Prophet and Dr. Kristen Pickett to work on um, more kind of telehealth-related projects moving forward from this. But Dr. Kaysen taught me a lot about how to conceptualize telehealth as not a separate model of service, but merely a service delivery mechanism. So I think it's helpful for OT practitioners to use their clinical reasoning they are licensed, they are experts in their own field, and hopefully we can have payment models in place where professionals and families can decide if telehealth or even a hybrid model may be right for them. So I don't think we should ever think of telehealth as this kind of separate thing, but it's just another way uh, for us to you know, implement interventions and work with families. I love that answer. And it really sounds like it can empower practitioners to further use clinical reasoning and just have another tool in their toolbox as a, as a different way to deliver services that may be best for some of their clients um, or maybe not for others, but always good to have in the, in the back pocket, I think. I think so too. And I think it kind of, um, kind of protect our profession in a way from having to get like a, um, an extra credential or, you know, I, I'm all for training. I think we should all be continuing education. But if we just think of it as part of our profession versus something kind of separate, I think that could open us up for, for other sorts of licensure issues, perhaps. That, that's a good point. And Lauren, in the August 2020 issue of the American Journal of Occupational Therapy, you were a co-author on the article titled, a telehealth intervention to increase toilet training in autism. Um, so this article mentions Telescope, which stands for Telehealth Strategies for Collaborative Occupational Performance Engagement. Um, and I looked this up a little bit. Telescope is a parent training intervention that combines self-directed online education modules with individualized telehealth coaching sessions to increase child toileting skills. I wanted to ask you, if a practitioner is preparing to use telehealth interventions, do you recommend they find and follow a program or protocol like Telescope? And what evidence can practitioners use to, to support their choice of telehealth training programs? So Telescope was supported in part by an AOTF grant, Intervention Research Grant. Listeners can find our amazing podcast about uh, toilet training and mealtime uh, at telescopecenter.org. 
Anna Wallace and I never thought we would be podcasters, <laughs> but um, there are there's telehealth interventions that use asynchronous material, so things like narrated PowerPoints. Um, so families can still access individualized services, but then they can also go online and like watch, you know, narrated PowerPoints for that education piece. But a lot of the articles, if you look at them, parents don't, they often don't meet fidelity with those, meaning they, they're not going to necessarily finish all of these narrated PowerPoints or they see them more as homework. And so Anna and I try to figure out like, okay, if we want this hybrid model that has a website with educational materials, but we still want to make it incredibly family friendly, how do we do it? And uh, we did it just like you and I are engaging in this conversation, Matt. Uh, we created nine podcasts all about toilet training. <laughs> so um, that was the asynchronous piece. And uh, each little podcast. Um, it's short. Uh, we interview experts. So we got to interview Winnie Dunn about, you know, sensory processing and toilet training. We interviewed an SLP about communication and toilet training. And then we kind of pointed parents in the direction of, uh, you know, which podcast you want to listen to this week and what do you want to work on in our individualized coaching sessions. That's all to say that I think practitioners, uh, I think protocols and evidence are always helpful, but I also want to trust uh, my, my peers in knowing what's right for the families that they serve. And also, um, even more importantly, trusting that the families know what's right for themselves and their families. So even if you have a protocol that's evidence-based, the family might be like, yeah, sure, right? Like, okay, go through your protocol. You, they're not going to do it that week if it doesn't fit with their family. So I think, I think flexibility is key. Awesome. Thank you so much. And let's see, I, I think you kind of already answered the next question, talking about telescope and asking what practitioners should look for in a telehealth program before they implement it. Is there anything you wanted to add there? The only thing I would add is I don't know that we ever set it up to be a telehealth program. I think we wanted to create resources for parents and the toilet training kind of podcast and everything on there can be for all children. It's not just children with autism. It's all children. We wanted to create something that used strengths-based language that didn't talk about deficits and that was truly family-centered and could empower parents. And so I don't, I don't know if it's a program or more that it just falls in line with this kind of strengths-based coaching work that we do. Awesome. Th thank you for, for explaining that further. I, I want to focus the next couple questions now on implications uh, for practice um, of our listeners and, and all practitioners. You've studied how interventions like coaching and toileting can be applied via telehealth. How does your approach to intervention change when you're using telehealth as opposed to being in person? My approach to all interventions is based in coaching, which empowers caregivers. I don't think that any of our practices should dramatically change um, regardless of what service delivery mechanism we're using. There has been like, you know, these Facebook groups about going bagless. Have you heard that term? I have not personally going bagless. That's new to me. So, 
so bagless is like an early intervention. A lot of practitioners will bring their, their own toys into people's homes. And the, the bagless is saying, you just go in. Like you, you are the OT, use the materials that they have available. And um, we've seen that many practitioners struggle with even going bagless because they don't have their toys with them. And, and it's hard to have a plan when you don't know what you're going to show up to. So with telehealth, I think that that kind of um, lack of power is even more apparent, right? We don't know what we're logging on to. Sometimes we don't even know who's going to be there when we log on. Um, but the, the really kind of great thing is that telehealth invites us to practice uh, what we know are recommended evidence-based strategies to engage caregivers, to build on children's interests, and to stitch our, situate our interventions in everyday routines. So the, the beauty of it is that we shouldn't have to change our practice if we don't put our hands on the child because best practice and even division of early childhood recommended practices says we should always be coaching the caregiver. So in, a, in an ideal world, it wouldn't change very much at all. Awesome. I, I love that. You know, the, the manner of service delivery does change, but really the OT process and relying on clinical skills and clinical reasoning should stay constant. I, I really like that answer. Thank you, Lauren. I do, I do want to say with the caveat, it, it can be more, dif it's, it's difficult sometimes, right? Like I'm not trying to paint this like amazing rainbows and unicorns picture because um, it can be difficult when you can't, when people are off screen or the kids running around the house and everything is upside down and you get motion sickness. <laughs> like there, there are challenges that don't happen in person and those are real, um, but the practice model shouldn't be all that different. But those um, technology problems and kind of uh, placement or environmental problems um, can be different. <laughs> I, I love that. Maybe take your, take your Dramamine before your telehealth <laughs> session so you don't get sick. It's um, no joke. No joke. <laughs> Lauren, can you share a, a case example or a personal story of how using some of these evidence-based telehealth interventions to deliver OT led to a positive outcome for a child or, or their family? In one of our studies, we worked with um, a young child who uh, he had a diagnosis of autism and his parents had goals related to play and feeding. The child, um, who was about three and a half, um, had received a lot of ABA and continued um, to be in kind of a full-time ABA program, but had never had OT. And so the, the parents struggled to find an OT. There was not one in their community that had availability. And through this kind of short-term coaching intervention, because all of our studies are nine to 12 weeks of coaching, parents identified their own goals, and then they problem-solve with the coach with the OT through strategies to address that goal. As you've probably gathered from earlier in this interview, in coaching, we ask a lot of questions and we empower parents to consider their child's strengths. When we get into therapies that are super intensive and using deficit-based language, when parents are really accustomed to, to those types of interactions with professionals, it can often make parents forget about their child's personality. The first question that I always ask parents or that our team, whoever logs on, we always ask parents, the very first question is, 
you know, what's, what's the best thing about your kid? What is he or she really good at? It's amazing how many parents cry during that first like five minutes because they're not used to that approach. They hear those D words, those deficit words all the time, and they're not used to, to hearing about their child's strengths. So in this particular case, uh, the child did a lot of tabletop activities during the day. Three and a half year old did a lot of tabletop activities. And the parents were kind of given this homework to do tabletop activities at, in the evening as well. But the child's interest was building pillow forts, uh, lots of proprioceptive input. He loved roughhousing with his dad. And through coaching, we really kind of reasoned through, and the parents discovered that this was how the child played. So this was how he could relax in the evening. This is what play looked like for him. It wasn't pretend play with like, you know, little figures sitting at the table. It wasn't drawing. This was what play looked like for him. And this was how he could engage and be happy. So at the end of the intervention, um, the mom was talking to the OT and I, I love this so much. You know, they'd only been at this for nine to 12 weeks. And the mom said that in the future, when they're going to work on something or something comes up, she said, I'm going to look at my husband and say, what questions would the OT ask us? And I loved that because it meant that they had the tools for whatever was coming their way. They had that coaching framework or that kind of, um, I always call it like a metacognitive map to talk through, okay, how can we use our child's strengths and our child's interests to get through this kind of new hurdle? And that's that ultimate goal is family capacity. So we could do that over telehealth or, or we could do that in person, but I think it's, it's the best thing about coaching. Thank you. That's such a, a wonderful example of how coaching can enable families and, and really lead to, to awesome outcomes. I really love that question you mentioned uh, about asking about what what your child is really good at. I want to ask you if, if uh, you have any other examples of questions or, or maybe coaching techniques or, or phrases that, that an OT would typically use in delivering a, an intervention. Sure. So I would suggest that OTs um, or anyone that's interested in coaching goes to the Rush and Sheldon Early Childhood Coaching Handbook. Um, they have lots of resources in that coaching handbook about how to implement coaching. They also have, um, I believe their website is EI Excellence. And the, the beautiful thing with coaching is that you don't have to be in early intervention. I know a lot of school-based practitioners that are uh, now using telehealth are having to draw from some of those EI principles, including coaching, because we're back in homes. So it, it's also, it draws, a, it's kind of like co-op. If listeners uh, know co-op, there, there are differences, but it's all about kind of that client and uh, family empowerment. Definitely go there um, to learn more. Awesome. Thank, thank you so much. We're almost getting to the conclusion. I just have a couple more questions for you, Lauren. What, what advice would you give to a practitioner or a clinic who wants to begin to offer telehealth services? Sure. I would... I would say engage in some training, um, find resources to support you in doing this. Um, of course, there's kind of those nuts and bolts of, you know, finding a HIPAA compliant video conferencing platform, 
making sure that you have all the, the tech and data requirements. But then there's also these pieces of, okay, how do I, how do I build virtual rapport? Some people call it website manner. How do I, <laughs> <laughs> there's these terms, right? So how do I do that? Um, Cause some of the research is showing that we spend less time in the chit chat during telehealth than we do in our in-person services. So kind of the novice might jump into the telehealth session and say, how was your goal this week? What did the goal look like? Versus when we're in person, we, we feel, it feels more natural to say like, how was your weekend? How's it going? Right. Oh, you know, what, what was for breakfast? Just some of this like chit chat. Um, and so I think um, there's resources out there to support practitioners in, in developing some of that and feeling more comfortable with that. And then the, the other big thing is becoming more comfortable engaging with caregivers or whoever kind of the helpers are on the other side, whether that's siblings or grandparents or, you know, an aunt or uncle or whoever's kind of there on the other end of the screen. Uh, there's definitely more adult interaction. There's also on our website, uh, telescopecenter.org, we have some training videos about some of these, these concepts. Um, and then Telehealth Share um, is a new uh, website, and they have wonderful resources for practitioners as well. And don't be afraid to jump in. That's what, Don't be afraid to jump in. It's never going to be perfect. It's always going to be messy. I love that. I love that encouragement. Lauren, you've already shared so many resources that I'm definitely going to look into and excited to, to hopefully incorporate into my soon-to-be budding practice. Um, are, there, are there any additional resources you'd like to recommend to listeners who want to learn more about telehealth or learn how to use it in their own practice? I will definitely share these all that I've, um, that I've listed uh, throughout our interview, Matt, and um, hopefully we can share those in the notes. Again, International Journal of Telerehabilitation, telehealthshare.org, and then, of course, American Journal of Occupational Therapy. Their position papers are very helpful, and um, any kind of special interest section uh, papers that talk about telehealth. We also, in the new um, evaluation and occupational therapy book, have um, a little chapter about measurement and telehealth. So I can provide the link to that too. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And listeners, please just check our episode description uh, for all these wonderful links. Lauren, we're, we're to the last question now. This is our golden nugget segment. If you could give our listeners one piece of advice or one recommendation, what would you tell them? I would, I would invite all practitioners to consider how we're using strengths in practice. I think that we can be the profession that really, really builds on children's and families' strengths and interests during their everyday routines. And I would just invite practitioners to think about whether it's in telehealth or in person, how we are using strengths in our intervention plans and how we're talking about strengths. That would be my dream. Thank you for sharing your dream with us on Everyday Evidence. It's been a pleasure having you on. Um, and I just want to thank you again for sharing your knowledge and expertise with us. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, of course. Thanks for listening to Everyday Evidence. Tune in next time for more evidence-based practice insights and applications.